glad you're here. If you got your hand out, we're going to spend some time uh, in our apologetic series on what will you say when you have an opportunity to have conversations with people regarding faith. Uh, <clears throat> this is part three. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Let me just remind you. Uh, so tonight after we're done in here, we're going to have a uh, short business meeting presentation of the uh, upcoming budget down in the fellowship hall. The musicians are going to practice in here, so uh, we'll try to wrap this up in a timely manner. And then if you want to go down there, if you can't stay, you can just poke your head in and get a packet, and then you can go over it. It'll literally take about 10 minutes for me to just go over um, the changes in the new budget, and then you can take the packet with you and go home and look over it. And uh, you have plenty of time to uh, ask any questions you may have or anything to that effect. We won't vote on it for uh, a couple weeks. It'll be at least two weeks before we do that. But we want to get it in your hands as soon as possible. So we'll do that tonight down the fellowship hall. I think there's some, there'll be coffee made and maybe a snack if we're lucky. All right, let's pray and then we'll, we'll begin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together. We think about all those in uh, Pensacola and Orange Beach and in those areas and Fairhope, those churches that uh, are not able to do what they might normally do on a Wednesday night. And Lord, we, we know all too well what it's like, but we sympathize and empathize with them. Lord, we pray that the gospel would be advanced and that your people would display your goodness and your grace through the, the trying times that they face from the hurricane. And Lord, thank you that we, along with uh, tens of thousands of other churches around the region and the nation, uh, will be able to respond with resources and love and care. And so, Father, we just, we just pray that people would come to faith in you because of the response of your people that would just display your goodness. So, Lord, we need ears to hear tonight that you would help us to receive what you have to say to us that it might result in boldness for your gospel, the advancement of your kingdom, the pushing back of darkness and the display of your splendorous, beautiful light. So thank you for Jesus above all things. We pray in his name. Amen. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the pathway of pain. Uh, <clears throat> this uh, conversation, this should be a conversation that you would be engaging in today. Uh, a, a lot of these Thoughts were on my mind even when we first uh, began this series. Uh, I had a conversation in a uh, hardware store with a young man on this very topic right here. He was talking to somebody else he, about some post he saw on his cell phone, and he was just expressing his disbelief for uh, the depravity of the world around him. I mean, we're talking about this guy's maybe... 
maybe 21, maybe not even 21, young. And uh, he's bemoaning the moral depravity of the country in which he lives in. And I overhear the conversation. I'm so I just detoured down the aisle, which I didn't need anything on that aisle, but I heard him and, and there's somebody else talking. I guess the other person worked at the hardware store, so I went right down in the middle. Got right in the middle of him and said, hey, what world problem are y'all solving? And he looked at me and he said, well, apparently nothing. Have you seen this? And he showed me his cell phone and had some, you know, some latest crazy wacko thing that was going on in California. And... <clears throat> Gave me an opportunity to start this conversation. So hopefully tonight will help you because these are the questions people are asking, especially right now, uh, more so than I think ever before. Questions like, why do the innocents suffer? See, one of the problems that when you, when you endeavor to start sharing your faith, when you're talking to somebody about the gospel who's an unbeliever, well... One of the big uh, pushbacks that they're going to have is this issue of pain. So whenever somebody says, you know, why do the innocent suffer? You may not want to say this. I always think this. I mean, especially not early on in the conversation. But, you know, I just remember uh, years ago, R.C. Sproul was asked this question. He said, I don't know. When I meet an innocent, I'll ask him. <laughs> so, you know, which is the truth. Uh, okay, what about why do we face all these diseases? You know, what's the deal with COVID-19? Is God trying to punish us? Why doesn't he stop it? On and on the questions go. Then we have the <clears throat> question of the very moment in which we live in. What about natural disasters? Why, why doesn't God stop them? Why do they, you know, what did the people who's lost their homes or got flooded out or what did they do to deserve that or however it is that they might process the information? Now, here's, here's the way the world thinks. Uh, Stuart Mill, philosopher, he says, if God desires it, to be, uh, if God desires there to be evil in the world, then he's not good. If he does not desire that there be evil, yet it exists, then he's not omnipotent. And so it's this, it's the tension between these two things that people find irreconcilable. And which is actually uh, no tension at all, but it just takes a minute of explanation. And people need explanation. If I were lost and had never uh, spent time in the Bible, I would believe the same thing. And I would be puzzled by the same thing. And I would probably read that quote and say, yes, exactly. If I'd never been exposed to the truth or didn't know. Because if you haven't, um, that's the way you would think. I mean, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a fantastic book called The Problem of Pain. And in that book, uh, he summarized it this way. He said, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But 
the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God either lacks goodness or power or both. And he's describing what the world uh, sees and what they understand and how they explain it. So the world has a solution to this problem. They never call it this, but it's the theodicy. And basically what that is, is a, it's a fancy theological word for a compromise, so to speak, or an omission. I put the definition there in your handout. It's an exclusion of the divine attributes, mostly focused on holiness and justice, and establishing or allowing the existence of physical or moral evil. So in order to deal with the problem of evil, what we have to do is we have to adjust God. We have to adjust God around what we understand so things about God have to be omitted or deleted or recalibrated or whatever the case may be. Now, I'm just going to give you a few examples. Um, or, well, first of all, let me give you my translation. So the translation of a theodicy would be God cannot be sovereign and good because when it comes to dealing with why does evil exist, why is there injustice, how come innocent people suffer, anything with regards to that, okay? The particular conversation that I got in with this young man, interestingly enough, was about the mistreatment of children. Now imagine a young man, he has no idea who I am, and he's literally going to debate me about the mistreatment of children. So at the end of the conversation, I said, by the way, have you heard of a nonprofit called Rescue 100 that's reformed the uh, foster care system in the state of Mississippi? And he said, I think I did hear something about that. And I said, well, I started that. And his, he was like, oh. But nonetheless, it was a beautiful opportunity for us to have a wonderful conversation. So let me just give you some simple theodicies, okay? They're everywhere. But the most common ones would be to just come up with a system where evil's unreal, where evil is an illusion. Now, this is going to be less prevalent in the West, but big time in the East. I mean, you go to, you go to India, you, you get into Eastern mysticism, Buddhism. Um, the Buddhists believe that evil is an illusion. And so the way to, the solution for evil is it's mind over matter. It's only evil. It's only bad. It's only pain if you allow yourself mentally to believe that. Well, you know, that breaks down and falls apart with just simple human experience. I mean, if you break your femur, well, let me just put it this way. If I break my femur and you tell me that pain is an illusion, the two arms that aren't broken on me are going to try to hurt you uh, as swiftly as possible. I might not be able to catch you, but if I get you, in other words, that only works until you're in a great deal of pain or you've been affected greatly by evil, right? I mean, if, 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 if you live in a Buddhist, uh, a, a, a Buddhist area 
of the world or amongst people who believe in Buddhism and your family gets murdered in some kind of political uprising or something like that, uh, and then somebody says, well, evil is just an illusion, there might be another murder. Now, the, biblically, look at Psalm 22, this prophetic psalm about what Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, the Bible, this is just a very simple way to, I mean, Jesus, this isn't an illusion when he says this on the cross. He's not just imagining that he's been forsaken, that he's, that why are you so far from me? Uh, my words and my groaning. See, he cries out by day and you don't answer. In other words, it's ridiculous. But there are billions of people who would uh, profess faith in Buddhism. And what can I say? What about um, evil is good in disguise? Taoism. There's all sorts of Eastern mystic religions that have all these different uh, branches of belief that everything is good and evil is some misunderstanding of something that is good. Now, when you come to the West, where this gets really tricky and perverted is because a lot of the Western cultic beliefs about this are perversions of Romans 8.28. And so they would say, well, the Bible teaches that all things are good, which the Bible does not teach. And so what their claim is, is that from God's perspective, all things are good, even though they may, not, they may seem bad from our point of view. So what they would say is, is that if you could see what the higher power sees or even what God sees, depending on what mystic belief system this is and what they call their ultimate deity, then it's just a... Uh, it's a lack of being able to see clearly. But we know that what Romans 8.28 says, it's right there on your handout, it doesn't say that all things are good. It says that bad things will be used for good by God, but notice only in the lives of a select group of people, not in everyone. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So for only, only in those who live and exist in God's economy belong to God. And you can think about how God uses the betrayal of Judas to bring redemption, yet that doesn't in any way minimize the wickedness of what Judas did. Hence, look at the outcome for Judas, right? Yet at the same time, good comes. And there's a perfect example of Judas is not called according to God's purpose. Yet we receive the blessing of redemption that comes from something that happens that is bad or evil. Another example would be dualism. And this is much more Western. So this would, be a, this would be a lot of, I mean, a lot of especially what 
people today in the United States and in Western culture who believe in God but don't have any sort of organized belief. They just believe in God, but then they have their own sort of come up with their own ideas. It would be God versus Satan or good versus evil. And so the way they would, their claim would be that God really wants good, but Satan thwarts his purposes with evil. And so this battle rages on all the time. And I guess it sounds good if you were, you know, making a movie for Hollywood. But in reality, um, two opposing forces with equal power um, just nullify each other and, and really uh, create nothing. And then the Bible comes along and says, uh, like in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That in reality, there is no battle between good and evil. Evil is always working to try to accomplish its purposes, but uh, as a defeated foe and uh, God may, uh, everything that evil is able to do, God has to allow because his power is unlimited, you know. Um, and then there's all sorts of other spinoffs from this. I mean, you have this, uh, the postmodern belief that evil is just relative, that there's really no such thing as good and evil, and that there's no real moral absolutes. And uh, feelings trump morality. And so when we see something as evil, it's because we feel that it's evil. I mean, no, I'm pretty sure that when you've been affected by pain or evil, it's not just because you feel that it's evil. Again, that only works for somebody who has not uh, been affected by it. Because what happens is, is that you ultimately dead end when you get to these polarizing things. Like, in, you know, if you're a postmodern who is a, believes in relativism, then when you get to something like terrorism, we recently just celebrated, the, you know, 9-11 a few days ago. So is that just, is that bad because it, I feel bad? You see? And then what happens is you realize that you ultimately get to a place where you have to make a decision. I mean, something has to be bad. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Uh, but here's what we need to do. We need to remember that our knowledge is limited because our minds are fallen. So when you, when you get in a conversation with somebody about this issue of why do bad things happen to good people, you know, there's so many ways that people phrase these things. What you need to understand and what you going in is that don't, don't, uh, you don't have all the answers because we don't have all the answers because God gives us uh, limited information. We have all that we need, no doubt, no problem. I'll, I'll make that painfully clear tonight. But you want to make sure that you're not um, uh, acting as if you have the answer to all questions because we don't. We don't. We don't. And, and there's a reason that we don't. Just because we can't understand 
some real things fully doesn't mean that we're, under, uh, we're, that we're unable to understand those things truly. See, there's lots of things that I don't understand fully, but I understand truly. Lots of things. And so just re- keep that in mind, that there's tons of things that whoever you're talking to believes that they don't understand. Just think of, you know, it's very easy to just think of things that, you know, you could just, I'm standing in a hardware store. I could just reach over and grab a can of paint off the shelf. And I could say, do you believe that what's in this, if you put it on a brush and put it on your house, is going to change the color of your house to the color that's on the can? And he would say, yes, I believe that. And I would go, do you understand the molecular composition of the chemicals that are in this can that create uh, a, a situation where that actually works and it, it handles the weather? And so, of course, No, because he's not a chemist. So he truly believes that, but he doesn't fully understand it. So you can, you can handle that in any scenario. And from a Christian perspective, I mean, sure, I truly believe in the Trinity. Do I fully understand it? Of course I don't. And here's why. Because I can't. I can't. So that's okay. That's not a problem. Just understand that that is not a problem. So the question is then, can we trust a God who has not revealed everything to us in full? Well, of course Of course. And there's lots of reasons why God hasn't revealed everything to us in full. There's the reason that, well, we don't have the capacity to understand everything in full, right? There's the reason that if we understood everything in full, there would be no need for faith, right? Which would be another problem. So there's all sorts of logical reasons why we don't have full revelation, but we don't need it. So we have what we need. We trust God because what we do know and what God has revealed to us. And so that's what you want to focus on. That's what I'm going to focus on. We'll just walk through some things. Now, remember, as I lay out a biblical uh, framework for this, when you're having a conversation with somebody who's, who's not a believer... Uh, and especially somebody, you might be having a conversation with somebody who's not a believer in Scripture. Well, then, you know, you're not going to be able to use the Bible to make the Bible true if you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe the Bible. But yet you're, you still need to have this biblical conversation with them. And then as we, you know, come around at the end, I will... Just use logic and reason to explain uh, that which needs to be explained. But, you know, if somebody's saying, well, you're just using the Bible to uh, verify the Bible. Well, if we're having a conversation about truth, the only thing I can utilize to verify truth is truth. And so it's not circular reasoning. It's just simple logic. But just keep, keep that in mind that that could be something that, you know, creates some pushback on their part, which is fine. Um, just keep pressing forward. It's pretty simple to uh, just rationally and consciously and thoughtfully, uh, if somebody's willing to consider 
and listen, then you can have a, a, a very profitable conversation. So, first of all, God is indeed sovereign. You see, what we do know and what He's revealed to us is sufficient. And this is why the sovereignty of God is such a very important doctrine. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, if He uh, in the seas and all deeps and a thousand other scriptures about the sovereignty of God, don't back up on the sovereignty of God. You can defend the sovereignty of God. It's very defensible. And what you don't want to do is get into a situation where you're backing up on the sovereignty of God because then what you do is you're creating, first of all, a God that's not the God of the Bible. And second of all, uh, a God who's not sovereign is not a God worthy of your faith or trust. And so you, you wouldn't even want to convince somebody to believe in a God who's not sovereign, nor would you. So you have to stand on the sovereignty of God. Second of all, God's perfectly just and righteous. This is going to come as a shock to somebody who is looking around at the world today and going, well, I would like to, I would like to see, know, and understand that. Well, we'll get to that in a few minutes. The Scripture says in Deuteronomy 32, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. And then thirdly, evil is entirely within the sovereignty of God. Now, you'll notice I listed a whole bunch of more down there, but in the course of a conversation, you're not going to go through 20 different things. But if I only had three things to say, these would probably be the three things that I would say because they're the three things that I think answer the three, you know, big problems that people have. You see, the fact that evil exists is not a problem for the sovereignty of God. It's not a problem at all. Remember in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested by God, attested by God, to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So what Peter does is lays out the fact that, just like I said earlier about the situation with Judas, how God will use the existence of sin and fallenness within His sovereignty to advance His redemptive purposes. So whether that be Judas, whether that be um, Joseph in, in Genesis uh, chapter 50, for what, you know, what man intended to be evil, God intended to be good, and how God used all those things together. Now remember, it doesn't mean what you're not saying, what I'm not saying, what the Bible's not saying, is that these things that are bad are not bad, but in actuality they're good. No, they are bad. They are bad. 
But God can use bad things and will use bad things and does promise to use bad things in the life of uh, believers. Now, see, he uses it in unbelievers. But he promises in believers' lives that all things will work together for good. In unbelief, he uses it. I mean, look at Pharaoh. God used Pharaoh. The Bible clearly says in the book of Exodus, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He, he used Pharaoh's wickedness to advance his redemptive purposes, to bring about what he did in the life of the children of Israel. So, all the time, this whole economy is swirling around us. But the Bible would declare that he's the all-powerful governor of the universe, Psalm 115. That he's in control of every aspect of his creation, Ephesians 1 or Psalm 33. God can orchestrate the sin of man to glorify himself. Yet in doing so, he's not tainted by that happening. So he didn't cause Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery or throw him in a pit or any of those things to happen. He didn't force any of that to happen. He used it. God's never blameworthy for evil that occurs. Those who commit it are to blame. We saw that in James chapter 1 in the explanation for why there's uh, evil among us. But at the same time, God still uses it without excuse. Remember what I said about Judas. Look at how God used Judas's actions and activity, yet Judas paid the price for his and is continuing to pay right now for his choices, you see? So those two things don't cancel each other out. God's working simultaneously alongside what's going on around him. God's good and holy. He hates evil. We saw that in Habakkuk chapter 1. And God judges us. We do not judge God, Romans chapter 9. Okay, so now that we've sort of established all that, now what we should do is have a practical conversation about how can we talk through some of this in a way that a person who is an unbeliever, is unsure, is unchurched, doesn't have any sort of spiritual background, whatever the case may be, in just a very conversational way so that you can explain some of this, okay? So this is... <clears throat> The first thing, in conclusion, so here's, here's the first thing. You're thinking, man, we just, well, it's going to take some time to do this. Why should we trust the God who has revealed himself in Scripture? Why should we do that? What would be the point of that? You see, because here's, if, when I was an unbeliever, and if I met you in a store and you started talking to me, my question is, I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with you. I'm trying to figure out why do you need this belief system? What's broken with you? Why are you so weak? Why are you so, why do you have to, because I would have, as an atheist, prided myself on the fact that I'm not searching for all these answers. Even though I was, I just didn't know that I was. But somebody could have a conversation like I'm about to explain to you in a minute that would cause me to realize that in fact I am and everyone else is. So you see what the, the thing is that they're wondering is, well, why should I even, why would I trust the God of the Bible? What makes the 
what makes what God says in the Bible good news and sensible news? And remember, we're in the context of everything around me. Look, even if you're, like I've said this multiple times recently, regardless of what your belief is, but what you believe in or disbelieve or whatever the case may be, no one, you're not going to meet anyone who's going to say to you, man, everything's going great. The world is better right now than it's ever been before. No one is going to say that. Which is a golden opportunity. Which is what makes this such an exciting time to be alive and to be a believer. Because, listen, I've never in my lifetime experienced this situation before. One of the biggest problems that we've had in evangelism up until this time right now has always been that most of the people in the United States, which is basically just, you know, living in Disney World compared to everyone else in the world, they don't care. They're like, why? I don't even care about any of this. My life's great. Everything's great. Why would I want to listen to you? Which is why I'm always saying, all the people that are always going out knocking on doors saying, hey, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? They're wearing out the trailer parks and the low-income housing. None of them go into the gated communities where there's two and three million dollar houses. Why? Because they intuitively know that their message will not work. Ding dong, the giant doors open, you know. Uh, the guy who just sold his internet company for $100 million, and you're going to pull the, hey, if you die tonight, what's going to happen to you? He's like, bro, if I die tonight, I'm still going to die happier than you'll ever be, so get off my porch before I have you arrested. And don't scratch any of my six cars on your way out. How come, why aren't they knocking on those doors? Because they know they won't listen. What they do is they're going to places where people have a knowledge of need. So if I knock on your little raggedy, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm out in some trailer park or some, you know, low-rent housing or something like that, knocking on doors, and you're struggling just to make ends meet and you open the door, well, you, you have need. So I have a captive audience if I can tell you something you want to hear. But you see, the gospel is universal. It's not, it, it, it's, it pierces past any sort of economic position. Or, but what you have right now is an opportunity where everybody realizes it's not good. Everybody. It's not good. So you could go into a gated community and knock on the door and say, hey, the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, and they're going to go, I agree. And it doesn't even, you don't even have to ask any questions about what they believe, if they're on this side or that side. Or, if that's irrelevant. They all agree that it's bad. I'm just trying to tell you that you need to be having these conversations right now with people. There is never, ever been a time like this. So here's why the, what the Bible says is good news and how to explain that. First of all, because according to the Bible, God will one day put an end to pain, suffering, and evil. 
Now, this will get everyone's attention because now they're thinking, hmm, okay, let's have a conversation about this. Because maybe they're very antagonistic towards God and they're thinking, well, then why hasn't he come to do it? Well, I'm getting to that. But the fact of the matter is, is that he says that he's going to do it. That's, that's the conversation we want to have. And so in Revelation 21, the Bible says that he's going to put an end to all of these things. Now, how exactly does that work and why doesn't God do that now? So when somebody says, well, what about all these injustices that are happening? What you want to know is, what is the big injustice that is pressing on their mind? In the conversation that I was having, it was the maltreatment of children. Maybe in the person that you're talking to, it could be who knows what. Maybe somebody that they love, somebody in their family, uh, recently was a victim of some uh, atrocious crime. Maybe it's, I mean, who knows? It could be whatever. Maybe they just lost a family member to a disease that for, for no reason or whatever. I mean, I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago who just lost somebody very important to them to lung cancer, and they were so mad at God because the person never smoked a day in their life. Now, what I, you know, I, I didn't go into the whole thing that said, well, who said that you have to smoke to get lung cancer? But here's the thing, they're wounded and hurting over this. I don't, need to, I don't need to disprove the fact that they that it's bad that somebody they love died of lung cancer. I, wanna, I want them to tell me what it is, what atrocity it is that's pressing on their mind. So whatever it is, ask them. Say, so, you know, and then say, now, can God stop that from happening? Could God have stopped your... Mom from dying of lung cancer? Yes. Could God have stopped the uh, children from being sex trafficked? Yes. Can God stop whatever it is? Can God stop it? Yes. Because he's sovereign. Now, we all know where this is going, don't we? Then why doesn't he stop it? which is the million-dollar question that you want the person to ask. That's the very question you want them to ask. That's the question they ought to be asking. That's the question everyone should be asking. And you say, well, he will. But why doesn't he do it now? Well, if he does it now, he might do it now. We don't know. He, he's coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to do it. And it could be now. It could be tomorrow. It could be next month. It could be 10 years from now. It could be 100 years from now. We don't know. But when he comes back, he's going to do it. Now, why doesn't he come back now? Because once he comes back, what happens? Then the door slams shut. For people like you, the one I'm talking to. You see, because when he, when he stops it, he stops it dead in its tracks. 
And if you're not in, then you're out. Nobody's in the middle. See, you're either in or you're out. And so if he stops suffering and pain and evil, which he will, but when he does, that's it. It's over. And so that means all the people that are still wrestling with the questions like you're wrestling with. And so in his mercy, he tarries. Now, let's think about this for a minute. I know that you're upset because your mom died of lung cancer and she never smoked cigarettes. And I mean, that breaks my heart and I'm sorry that that happened. I'm sure you really loved your mom, and I'm sure your mom really loved you. But who made your mom? Who knit your mom together in her mom's womb? See, God loved your mom more than you'll ever even understand. He knew everything there was to know about your mom. You didn't. To which their next question is, well, then why, if he loved her, did he let her die? Which is back to the same situation we're in now. Because had he stopped it, you wouldn't even have had the chance to have the conversation that I'm having with you right now. You understand that? So what I'm trying to get you to see is that as painful as it was for you to lose your mom, it was far more painful for God to allow your mom to die than it was for you because he loves her more than you do. And yet, for the sake of allowing more people to hear, he holds back, even though it breaks his heart to watch what's happening to his creation. So when God looks at the situation going on in our culture, because the only thing people care about is what they can see and what they live in and what's affecting them. So you just address that. You say, so, so what do you think God thinks when he looks at the state of our culture right now? When he sees the, the division and the hatred, when he sees the violence, when he sees the injustice, when he sees the things that are, it, it devastates his heart in a way that we can't even understand. You know, the way you feel when you sit, you know, sit at home and watch the news all day and you get so wound up and your blood pressure is about to burst all your arteries and your. Well, how do you think God feels when he looks at his creation that he created in his own image, that he loves, that he loves so much that he gave his son to make a way to redeem. And yet they ignore and yet they continue and you see what you're doing is you're just opening their eyes to the, that, to the reality that there's things going on that are beyond just what we can see in our own little selfish view. That there's a whole spiritual realm out there where God is essentially holding himself back out of love for those who have yet to believe. So if you doubt how much, see, every time a person 
is saved. It's on an earthly level so astonishing that a, a sinful, broken, fallen human being can be redeemed and made perfect in the eyes of God. That is an, on an earthly level just a miraculous, unbelievable event. But on a, on a heavenly level, the fact that God who has such abiding love for his creation that he went to he went to all the trouble it's before he even sent his son look at the look at the lengths to which he had gone look at the lengths to which he had gone to orchestrate all of the things in the Old Testament to point to and lead to his ultimate purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ and so on and so forth. The fact that God gives us the revelation about himself that he does. He wants us to know him. He wants us to uh, be reconciled to him. But that in his great love for us, he restrains himself for the love of the lost which should greatly convict our hearts if we don't carry this deep abiding grief over the lost around us. See, how on one hand can we profess to be followers of this God and on the other hand not avail ourselves every single day to God, who are you putting in my path? Who will I come in contact with that does not know you? We can't say on one hand we follow a God whose maybe whose whose greatest ongoing act of love is his restraint to not put an end to all of this out of his love for the very people that we're ignoring. You see? And so on one hand, everything about being a Christian is this uh, tension. Because we, we live in this, uh, this earthly realm. And yet our citizenship is in heaven. And so we're, it's, we're, the kingdom of God is here, but we're not, we haven't fully received it yet. That everything is in this attention so what so at the same time the bible would say yes we ought to long for his appearing we ought to long for that moment when the trumpet sounds and the sky cracks open and the victorious christ comes to rescue his people but at the same time we also understand that what the reason that doesn't happen is his great love for those who have not yet come to him and so part of us in our longing for God to come is also this reality that, because here's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is, is that if you long for God's return and you're not busy doing his work, then you're making a terrible mistake. What does the Bible say about the master who returns to find the servants? Not about the master's business. You follow me? 
In other words, if you are not conscious and actively engaged in the in understanding the necessity for evangelism, a simple understanding of the Bible should make you go, well, I hope that God doesn't come back today because tomorrow I'm going to do a better job because you don't want God to come back and find you sitting on your rear end doing nothing. Right? So you see there's tension. So everyone that belongs to God stands before him at the judgment seat of Christ. You wouldn't stand. The only people that stand at the judgment seat of Christ are saved. But when the, when the wood, hay, and stubble is burned away, and there are those that come into the kingdom as by fire, meaning Everything that they spent their life doing is burned up. Look, if you're at the judgment seat of Christ, you're saved. And if you're saved, you go to heaven. You got that? But some people are going to go to heaven as by fire. Everything that they gave their life to just burns up. That's not going to be... Uh, an experience that anybody's going to want to have. Didn't you ever wonder why the Bible says in the book of Revelation that he's going to wipe every tear from your face? Well, what are the tears from? Well, there's going to be a whole lot of people that have a whole lot of tears because they wasted their life. They wasted it. So I'm just simply saying, listen, God is going to put an end to pain and suffering and evil. He's going to do that. We should believe everyone should be open to a conversation about the reason to believe in the God of the Bible because he's going to put an end to all of this. And the reason that he doesn't put an end to it right now is because he loves the world. And so whatever the person you're talking to has been out of shape about, just get them to understand that if God would have solved the problem they're bent out of shape about, then the, them, personally, they'd be without excuse. You see? So even though they're reeling, possibly, over the loss or some injustice that's been perpetrated against them, or maybe it's just reeling over the condition or situation, you got to get them to see, listen, because God is withholding, his return, you have an opportunity. So you need to consider this. You need to listen to what I'm telling you. Now you've got their attention. That the very thing they were angry about God for now is the ex exhibition of God's great love for them. Then, for the question of where is God in a world full of suffering and pain, the answer is the incarnation. You see, you always want to ultimately end with a conversation about Jesus. And here's the thing. Where is God in a world full of suffering? Well, that's a great question. Where is he? You know where he is? He's here. He came here. In other words, he didn't just stand back and say, well, look at that. That's a mess. That's a disaster. 
Maybe I'll, you know, see in the Old Testament he sent prophets. It was all just a precursor, all a forerunner to leading to the ultimate solution of, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to personally come and dwell among you. I'm going to enter into the pain and suffering, which he ultimately did. And so he's not passively standing back watching all of this pass by. No. But the opposite. He entered in. He lived on this earth. He felt everything that you feel and everything that I feel. He's been through. He understands. He loves humanity so much that he left heaven and became one of us and dwelt among us. He came down here and lived and suffered and Look, he wept, he felt pain, he felt hunger, he felt rejection, he felt betrayal. He was the subject of injustice, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Correct? Yes. And so he entered into it. He doesn't back up from it. See, the, the, you want people to understand that, that a, a, a Bible-believing Christian is not trying to, we're not trying to, to make the world seem like it's not as bad as it is. Oh, no. It's worse than you even think it is. And God came right down into the middle of that, right in the middle of it. Now, he didn't have to. He was under no obligation to, but he did. And that's important information for somebody to understand. And so... You know, a lot of times what Christians will do is they want to get God off the hook for suffering. You know, in other words, look, I mean, God's good and God's loving and God's truth, but people make bad decisions and people do bad. But that is a pointless conversation. And all you're doing is inoculating the gospel to this, you know, don't do that. Don't avoid the conversation of suffering. Don't try to excuse it away and make it like, no, enter right into it. I mean, get all in it. That helps the cause of Christ. And so you, you can explain to them, you can say, at the end of the day, when a person... Because, you know, this is your free choice. That's what I told the young man in the hardware store. I said, look, I'm about to go this way, and you're about to go that way. I'm, I may or may not ever see you again. So I just want you to know, you can leave this conversation, go right back to believing what you believed when I walked up, if you want to. But I just want you to consider the things that, that I've shared with you today. I want you to think about the things that I've said. And I want you to I want you to realize that at the end of the day, the only way a person can get to the place where they say, I can't believe in a God who allows this or that, or, you know, if God could stop it and he doesn't, then he's not good or he's not sovereign, or however they want to word it. The only way you can get there is you have to have 
to the, the, your, your highest understanding is out of order. And here's what I mean by that. The only way that you can say that or believe that is you have to put what you believe or what you perceive or what you feel or have felt or whatever the case may be, whatever they're bent about, they're putting that above what God says or what's true. In other words, they have to say and believe that their perception or their view is the highest and clearest view that there is. They have to negate the possibility that God can see things that they can't see. Because if you believe that God could see things and you can't see, then you, you have no leg to stand on, none whatsoever. Now, I'll explain it to you. You, can, you could explain this in a thousand different ways. You could say, let's suppose that me and you were standing in, the, uh, in a gravel parking lot or we were, we were out in the woods somewhere and there was, you know, and, and we were walking through the woods and I was 15 or 20 feet in front of you and I stopped and turned around to tell you something, and I said, stop right where you are, and you stopped. And I said, get down on your hands and knees and crawl over here to me. And you looked down, and you saw that there was rocks between me and you. And you said, I'm... I'm not going to get on my hands and knees and crawl on these rocks. And you said, get on your hands and knees and crawl to me. And so you got on your hands and knees and you crawled those 15 feet. And, and it hurt on those rocks. And then when you got to me, I said, now stand up, turn around and look. And you turned around and you saw a poisonous snake hanging out of a tree that was right over your head. I had a perspective you didn't have. Now, in order for you to walk away and stay the same way, you have to believe that the pain in your knees and in your hands of crawling on those rocks is greater than the pain of that poisonous snake biting you. You see? Because what they're saying is, is that, that, well, I can see. What I can see is there's injustice in the world. And I can't believe in a God who would allow that to happen. Well, I can. No problem. And they say, why? And I say, because God. See, you think that the worst thing is that your mom died from cancer or that there's children being sex trafficked or that the world is, that's what you think is the worst thing. But there's something way worse than a snake over your head that you can't see. And it's eternal. And God 
You may be crawling on your hands and knees through rocks right now, but that's so far less from what is actually hanging in the balance that whatever, listen, no matter how bad whatever it is that has happened to you is, no matter how much pain you've been through, it's not eternal. But this is. And so God can see something you can't see. And wouldn't it make sense that a loving God? You see, if God based his decisions on what we were experiencing, in other words, what our crawling on rocks to the exclusion if in other words because here's what the person wants the person wants me to say I'm just kidding they're crawling on rocks going this hurts this hurts I hate this they want God to say okay stand up forget it you don't have to do that anymore That would be the most unloving thing for God to do in the world. Because eternity, what hangs over your head is so much worse than what you're experiencing right now. It's not even in the same universe. So that's why God waits, and he waits, and he waits. And I don't know, but I suspect that even an all-knowing, all-powerful God, who doesn't exist in time as we do, But I don't think there's ever a, a second of a day that passes that he doesn't want to come right then and rescue his people. But he sees the greater good. He understands the greater evil. He knows Everything that he does is in the shadow of eternity. And so the last thing I want that person thinking about when I walk away is eternity. Eternity. You can stay mad at God if you want to. But eternity is an awful long time. So... The answer to the suffering is not a bunch of words, but it's the word. Come in the flesh. And I can't take away the pain from losing your mom. I can't take away the suffering from whatever it is that you're suffering from. But Jesus 
can give you peace in the midst of it. To know that no matter what happens, He's never going to leave you or forsake you. That you'll, whatever this world may have to offer or whatever you endure here, it won't be the last say. Eternity. Eternity. There's people that will cross your path tomorrow. Their eternity is in jeopardy. Let that be the motivation of our hearts. To have the conversations that need to be had. And believe me, in the moment, God promises to give you the words you need. So he'll give you the words you need. You don't have to be a theological genius. You just have to be a willing child of God. And he'll speak through you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel and the good news. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given us, Lord.